We look this morning at Galatians 2, verses 1 through 16, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copies of Scripture open reading along with me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning as we come to it. Father, your word is so good. It is so sweet. As the psalmist said, it is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. It is more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Oh, Father, that we would believe that your word and the riches of Jesus Christ are more valuable than the, the best food and the best money and the best possessions in this world. Father, make us to taste and see that you are good this morning. Make us to understand more of what we have in Jesus Christ. Set our hearts free through the gospel. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak powerfully, that you would preach as your word is being preached, that the men and women, boys and girls here would hear you and would believe you and would follow you and would um, abide in you and your love. We pray these things in your name and for your name's sake. Amen. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, to, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas again is Simon Peter, it's one of his names, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. And in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one 
will be justified. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was reading this week a letter that John Adam, very famous letter that John Adam wrote to Abigail Adams, his wife, on July 3rd, 1776, the day after independence was won for the United States. We actually probably should celebrate Independence Day two days ago because that's when it was won. Declaration signed July 4th, 1776. John Adams writes a very famous letter to his wife, Abigail, on July 3rd, the day after independence and the day before the letter is written. And this is what he says to her. He says, yesterday, the greatest question was decided, whichever was debated in America and a greater perhaps never was nor will be decided among men. A resolution was passed without one dissenting colony that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And as such they have and of right ought to have full power to make war, conclude peace, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which other states may rightfully do. You will see in a few days a declaration setting forth the causes which have impelled us to this mighty revolution and the reasons which will justify it in the sight of God and man, a plan of confederation will be taken up in a few days. And then listen to what Adam says. He says, the day is past. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance, by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty, it ought to be solemnized, solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward and forevermore. Now, I don't read that to you to stir up nationalistic zeal. I read that to you because I think what John Adams says about America in 1776 was very true, was very accurate, was very right, and is an illustration in a very, 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 very insignificant way of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ and that Paul defends in Galatia against the attacks of those trying to take that freedom away. And you'll notice what Paul says. He puts this little phrase and it will surface throughout this book, but notice what Paul says. He says in verse 4 that false brothers secretly were brought in. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. They came in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ and to bring us into bondage. And so what does Paul do? He steps up. He rises to the occasion. Paul rises like a man of war. He defends single-handedly that most precious gospel, the freedom that we have from guilt, the condemnation of the law, the commandments of men, the legal demands that God required, perfect obedience to the Mosaic law, Paul steps up to say, listen, you are free in Jesus Christ. You have had sins forgiven. You are justified by faith alone. You have righteousness in him alone. And if anybody adds anything to that, you have another gospel. It's another religion, Paul says. And Paul, in the same spirit of John Adams, is saying this is the greatest act that has ever occurred. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest act that ever occurred. The sufficiency of Jesus alone is so great that it must be defended at all costs against those that would bring you back into bondage. It's unthinkable that America would ever have gone back to British rule at any point after the great revolution that they went through. It's unthinkable that we would go back to bondage 
to the bondage of the flesh and the law and human tradition and man-made rules and religion and leave Christ and him alone who, who gave us that freedom. And so this morning we're going to see two things. We're going to see first the gospel and its freedom threatened. And then we're going to see the gospel and its freedom defended. The gospel and its freedom threatened. And the gospel and its freedom defended. Well, notice uh, in verse 1 that Paul tells us as he brings his history, he's been defending his apostolic ministry. He's been defending who he was, how he didn't receive the gospel from men. That's all of chapter 1, that his gospel came right from Jesus, that Jesus was revealed in him, that the gospel was explained by Jesus to Paul, that Paul was called to be an apostle from Jesus, not from anybody else. Peter didn't set him apart. They didn't have an ordination service. They didn't lay hands on him. Jesus ordained them. Jesus set them apart. Jesus commissioned them. Paul's been defending that ministry because his ministry is being attacked so that the gospel can be undermined by Jewish legalistic Christians who have come in and try to pervert the gospel and say, well, if you really want to be a Christian, you need Jesus and you need to be a Jew. You need to be back under the Mosaic law. And essentially what they were saying is, if you really want to be justified, you need Jesus and good works that he produces in you. Because, and, and here's, here's the real heart of the dispute in Galatia, it's not just about circumcision. That would be a mistake to say, well, what's the big deal about circumcision? We circumcise our babies today a lot of times. What's the big deal about that? What, what does that do? Well, Paul's going to say at the end of this letter, everyone who is circumcised religiously and trusting in their Jewishness and that sense of Judaic religion is a debtor to keep the whole law is a debtor to keep the whole law. Paul says, if you put yourself under the Mosaic law for salvation, circumcision being the entryway, that's the first of many laws, is you become a Jew by circumcision, you stay in by law-keeping. If you have that mindset, you have to keep all of it, Paul says. And Jesus did that. Jesus did that for us. And Paul says, that burden, the demands of the law, are no longer resting on us. And to put yourself back under that, even while saying I need Jesus and that, is another gospel. It's another religion. It's not a muddy gospel. It's another gospel. And so Paul has been defending, not because he wants to, but he has to. He's been defending his ministry. And now he comes to the point where he transitions in verse 1 of chapter 2. And from... The time of his conversion, I believe, until 14 years later, 14 years have passed. Paul's been preaching the gospel, planting churches, spreading the good news around the entire Gentile world. And 14 years after he was converted, he tells us he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and he took this person, Titus. He went up by revelation and set before them, he's speaking of the other apostles, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. You see, The gospel has been threatened. The gospel has been perverted. And so Jesus sends Paul to Jerusalem 14 years later. If if you think Paul is kind of a a cervic, angry, pugnacious guy, just look what he says. He says, I went up in verse 2 by way of revelation. Jesus Christ told Paul to go up to Jerusalem and contend for the gospel. We don't know when that revelation happened. We don't have a record of it in Scripture. We're just told that Jesus appeared to Paul. He went up to Jerusalem by revelation to set before the other apostles the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles. Now, this is a very difficult section of Scripture. And here's why. Because Paul just spent 24 verses in chapter 1 telling us his gospel was not according to men and that 
he didn't get it from the apostles, and that he wasn't sent by the apostles. So, in a sense, you may think Paul has just separated himself from the twelve. I mean, there's a danger in, in thinking Paul's saying, I've got this gospel over here, and I'm over here, and the other twelve are over here. And so what now happens is, we're told that as the gospel is being threatened, Jesus sent Paul to Jerusalem to preach his gospel to the other apostles so that the other apostles now would affirm, yes, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that we were entrusted with. That's the gospel that we preach. Not that it gave any um, authority to Paul, but it verified the gospel that Paul was preaching. And what it did was it brought together this unified understanding of what the gospel was. And that's important because we have a Bible written by different people. And the common attack on the Bible is, well, it's tons, tons of contradictions. There's, got, there's contradictions. The Bible was written by men. Every book ever written by a man has, has error in it. Let me say that emphatically. Every book ever written by a man has loads of error in it except for this book. And so we need to understand that though all these different men wrote it, all these different men were called by God and given the same truth and the same gospel. And Paul is going to Paul is going to defend vigorously the truth of the gospel. He's going to say in these verses that that the, the actions of Peter, what Peter will do shortly, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That there is truth, and that truth must be defended, and that. And that the truth, as we said in, in weeks past, have consequences. Truth has consequences. Lies have consequences. Everything that we believe has consequences. And Paul's going to say that the truth of the gospel is at stake. Therefore, the freedom that you have in the gospel is at stake. And so, there's going to be this harmonious acknowledgement that Paul's gospel was indeed the true gospel, the true good news, the true message about how you are accepted by God. And so after 14 years of preaching to Jews and Gentiles, Paul goes up to Jerusalem and preaches to the apostles. Now, I think, as I said in Acts several months back, it's hard for us to understand what it would have been like to be a Christian in Jerusalem in the first century. For us to understand what it would have been like to be a Christian in Richmond Hill in the 21st century is very easy. For us to understand what it's like to be a Christian in Jerusalem in the first century, in the, the, the very city where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified is very difficult. It would have been unbelievable to try to be a Christian in the midst of all of the persecution and hatred of those who had just crucified the guy you follow. It would have been unbelievable. The stresses, the fear of man, the persecution, and the meddling with religion, all the religiosity in Jerusalem, all the Phariseeism, all the Sadduceeism, all of the religious... Um, externalism and legalism pressing down on you, all the people telling you, well, no, you still need to keep the dietary laws and you still need to do this and you still need to do that and you still have to obey this and you still have to go to the temple and trying to sift through that. And that's where the problems come in. That's the, that's the stage in which the gospel is perverted in Galatia because now Paul goes up there to Jerusalem and notice what he says in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. You see, if you were Jewish in the first century and you went up to the temple and you brought a Gentile with you, all the Jews would have surrounded you and tried to make sure that that person was circumcised so that they could come and worship. And so what they had done was they had taken something that God never intended to be trusted in. They took something, a fleshly mark something that pointed to the gospel, a bloody cutting away of the filth of the flesh, 
something that pointed to the cross of Jesus. Not, it wasn't intended to be trusting in. And they trusted in their circumcision. They trusted in their national ethnic status. They trusted. They thought they were better than people because they were circumcised and Jewish. And when you bring that into religion, you have a false religion. And so if you brought anybody up, if you brought any Gentile up to worship God in Jerusalem, you would have a myriad of people trying to make sure that that person was circumcised so that they could boast in the flesh and say, yes, this guy's worthy. This guy's good enough. This guy can now come into the presence of God because he has a physical mark on him. And so what Paul is saying is, look, even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, here's where this gets very complicated. When Paul is trying to win Jews, he'll circumcise Timothy. He did that in the book of Acts. When he's trying to win a Jew over for Christ, he'll say, look, this doesn't really mean anything. These things don't mean anything anymore. So we'll go through with it for the sake of the gospel. When it's being said you need to be circumcised in order to be saved or baptized in order to be saved or any other thing that you do in order to be saved plus Jesus, you have another gospel. And Paul would not yield to it. Notice what he says. He says, yet because false brethren secretly snuck in and look at verse 5, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment. When the gospel is being attacked, when it's being threatened, we ought not give an inch to that. Now, I've been thinking a lot this week about these things. You hear these things from me a lot. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what I would have done if I had been here, what I would have done if I had been a Christian in Jerusalem. And I think there's a good chance I, believe it or not, would have compromised. I think there's a very good chance, I think there's a very good chance all of you would have compromised. And now, I would say that because Peter, the apostle, did. I would say that because even Barnabas was carried away with his hypocrisy. I would say that because everybody fell into the trap of the the Judaizers, except for Paul. Now, that ought to give us um, a, a response of stepping back and saying, do I think that I am smart enough strong enough, wise enough to keep myself free from theological error? Do I think I am in my own strength able? That would never happen. If you would say that would never happen to me or I'd never do that. Paul says, beware. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I was talking to one of you this morning. A true Christian will often say, I could commit any sin if God lets me go. I mean, somebody that really knows their heart. King David slept with a guy's wife and then killed him, one of his best friends. This is a man after God's own heart. None of us are called men and women after God's own heart. David was. Paul murdered a guy. Moses murdered a guy. The three greatest guys in the Bible other than Jesus were murderers. And there are sin after sin after sin of the saints in the Bible. And we very quickly say... Yeah, that could happen to me. I could do that. I could fall. If God doesn't keep me, I could commit adultery. Not that I've ever had this thought, but I could murder somebody. I mean, yes, if God withholds his restraining grace, common grace or saving grace, we're in big trouble. But somehow, we often don't think I could ever fall into theological error or heresy or deny the gospel. 
somehow that thought doesn't often cross our minds, that if God doesn't establish us in the gospel by grace, we will end up doing the very thing that Peter and Barnabas, even Barnabas, Paul says, almost surprised. Paul's like, even Barnabas, even faithful, encouraging Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And I think it also shows us, and and this is the point I really want to make, when the gospel is being threatened, the worst threat against the gospel is a razor's edge. It's a razor's edge. Many theologians have said the difference between truth and soul-damning heresy is a razor's edge. This is a razor's edge. Well, yeah, you need Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised. God commanded circumcision in the Old Testament, didn't he? He said the Old Covenant people were to have the mark of circumcision. And in that very fine razor's edge, in the denial of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation alone, everybody but Paul is led astray. I think that ought to give us pause, that we would be people that, Ask the Lord to deliver us from falsehood and lies. That we would be people that would be humble, distrusting, people that don't trust ourselves, our own knowledge, our own strength, our own ability. You know, I have a good friend who often says, um, heresy is like drugs. The people who do them think they're doing themselves good. Heresy is like drugs. Um, A little reading of this person over here, a little reading of this person over here, a little listening to this person who's on television, a little listening to this person, and, and soon you get led astray. And you think you're doing yourself good. And, and I think, in a very real sense, the error in Galatia seemed like a good thing. It seemed like a good thing for these Jewish converts to say, yeah, the Gentiles are saved, but come on, you've got to be Jewish too. You've got you to gotta come in here, you've got to get under the law, you've got to get back in under the old covenant shadows and types, the old ceremonies, the earthly manifestations that God put in place till Christ came. You've got to get up in there. And notice what Paul says. He says, we did not yield to them even for a second so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Listen, we should be so glad that the Apostle Paul did what he did on that day when he stood up to Peter, when he didn't let Titus get circumcised, when he defended the gospel against everybody. And listen, do you know how hard it was probably for Paul to do this? He had everything against him. The gospel was so being threatened that it was up to one guy to defend true Christianity. God had so ordered things that he allowed all the other apostles even to be confused on this point a bit at that point. And God brought it down to one man. And I think there's a lesson there for us. I think following Jesus, I think standing fast in the truth is always going to be unpopular. It's always going to be unpopular. You're going to have most everybody against you outside of the church. And you're going to have tons of people against you in the church. And sometimes you're going to have more people against you in the church than you're going to have outside the church, sadly. And yet, we are called, like Paul, when the gospel is being threatened, to see that threat and to take a stand, even if nobody else is, even if it's unpopular, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved among you. And then notice what Paul does. Paul actually... Um, goes on now to defend the gospel boldly. He first went to the apostles. He first went and preached his gospel to them. And at some point they had said, yes, this is the true gospel. So he is telling, uh, he is, he is setting out clearly that 
that they received him. After 14 years, they received him. And then he goes to the Gentile church in Antioch, and Peter is there. And notice what he says in verse 7. I'm sorry, in verse um, 11. When, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Now, there were false teachers teaching you need Christ plus circumcision. And then there were the apostles denying the gospel in their actions. Paul is actually confronting Peter, not for his preaching a false gospel, but because his actions actually were denying the gospel. Peter used to eat with Gentiles, used to sit with them, used to say, yeah, they're as much a Christian as I am. But when the Judaizers came in, he would leave them and he would only eat with Jews. He would only eat with certain people. Now, that's racism. Let me just say right now, if you're a racist, you need to repent of that. Um, That denies the gospel. If you think you're better than any ethnic group, socioeconomic group, and, and we do, we have it deep in our hearts. We do. We all have racism deep within us at some level. It manifests itself. If your actions are not in line with the acceptance that we have in Jesus, the oneness that we have in Christ in the gospel, we may be denying the gospel. We may actually be denying the gospel because of prejudices. That's what Peter's doing. Peter is now prejudicing himself against Gentiles who he used to have table fellowship with. He used to eat with them. Now he won't eat with them. And what he's doing is he's giving his imprimatur. He's saying the Judaizers are right. We're we're different classes. You've got to be a Jew to be saved. You've got to be a Jew to be accepted and in social fellowship in the church for us to receive people. And Paul says, notice what he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, who you eat with may not seem like a big deal. I think on the surface, a lot of this may seem irrelevant, but when you start getting down into God's word and you start seeing that our actions, our actions send powerful messages about what we believe. All of our actions and everything that we do send a powerful message about what we believe. Um, If we believe that our life is in Christ, that he is a complete savior, that he saves the worst of sinners, let let me just say this. If we believe that Jesus um, came to save the worst of sinners, then uh, we certainly won't hate homosexuals because we certainly know that he came to save homosexuals, and we won't hate any group of people because we'll want them to know Jesus, and we'll want them to know the grace of Jesus, and our actions will reflect that if we are saying, I am a sinner, and Jesus is a complete saver, and he saves us by his grace, then we will want others to know that grace, and our actions will demonstrate that. I think that's a big point, and our actions may deny what we say we believe. I think if you had asked Peter... I think if you had asked Peter, Peter, really? I don't think somebody would say really to Peter, but Peter, really? You really don't think justification is by faith alone and Christ alone? I think Peter would have said, yeah, I do. But his actions were betraying what he would have said he believed intellectually. And I think that's very important for us. Paul confronts Peter's actions in defending the gospel. And then notice... 
what he says in verse 14. He says to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you force Gentiles to live like Jews? What he's saying is, Peter, if you're brought into the newness of the new covenant, if you're living now, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, if you're living no longer under Mosaic legislation, no longer under dietary laws. um, It's interesting to me, I'll just throw this out here to you as a congregation, how much legalism is built around food. Interesting, in the Bible, how much legalism is built around what you eat, what you don't eat, who you eat with, who you don't eat with. Very interesting, I'll let you think about that. But Peter says, look, if you, if you live like a Gentile, you don't have to, you can eat bacon. You can eat bacon now, you're a Christian. You don't have to, there's no clean and unclean animals. God even showed Peter in a vision. He could eat any kind of animal. There's no more dietary laws. There's no more, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. And, and he's saying, if, if you're living now in the freedom of Christ, if you're living as someone who has been set free and you can enjoy all of the things that God wants you to enjoy because you're justified and accepted and you're not working for your salvation and everything's been accomplished, why do you try to go back and live under that structure? And what Paul is doing, I think, is very instructive. In defending the gospel, he's showing the futility of legalism. It would be like... It would be like someone um, uh, saying to you, you know, I know that there's no law that says you can't do this, this, and this, but I don't think you should. And then you saying, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't do that. But God hasn't made that law. and The government hasn't made that law. There are people that do this all the time, by the way, and try to say, you know, you really shouldn't do this. You really shouldn't do that. And you putting yourself willingly instead of saying, listen, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do if God hasn't said it's wrong and if the government hasn't asked me to sin. And, and what Paul is doing is showing that the futility of believing another gospel is that you actually bring yourself back under bondage. To live as an old covenant Jew was bondage, Peter said. He called the Mosaic economy a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers could bear that prepar- do you know how much better you have living in the new covenant the freedom that you have in christ not to have to go to the temple every week and, and kill little lambs not to have to watch everything that you're eating meticulously for religious purposes not to have to celebrate these specific feasts and festivals perfectly as god tells you to your whole life governed by dietary and ceremonial festival restrictions till Christ came who fulfills all that. It was, it was a huge burden. Peter says that. And I think while we are not in danger of that, we are in danger of losing the gospel to man-made religions, man-made, um, man-made uh, commandments. I think we are in danger of losing the gospel to saying, well, yeah, I need Christ but I have to somehow be good enough. Because I think that's essentially what's being said here. I need Christ and I need to be good enough. If you think that God accepts you because you're good enough, even if you say you need Christ, that's another gospel. That's not the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus did everything. He did it all. God came and did everything. And he took the punishment you deserve and I deserve. And he rose up on the third day. He fulfilled all the prophecies all the preparatory mosaic legislation, he fulfilled it all. He then justifies you freely by faith and faith alone. You are righteous before God. You are as righteous as Jesus Christ. Do you realize what John Adams said? That, that July 2nd would be the greatest day maybe in the history of man? No. The day Jesus died and rose again was the greatest day in the history of man. Because you were set free 
and you are now righteous before God. When God looks at you, he sees you as perfectly righteous in Jesus. That's the gospel. Don't lose that. He sees you today, no matter what sin you've struggled with, no matter what issues you have, no matter what situations you're in. If you're in Jesus, you are perfectly righteous positionally in Jesus Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by anything that you do. And you can never lose that. And Paul says you need to guard that vigorously. You need to be, you need to, if you believe that, I don't even need to tell you you need to guard that. I feel like it's almost redundant to have to tell somebody that's experienced great deliverance and great freedom in the gospel. You should want to defend that. And yet, the dangers are real. The dangers are real. Notice what Paul says in his defense, and, and I'm going to lead us into this for next week. This will bleed over into our next sermon. But notice verse 15 and 16. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth, speaking to Peter. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have belief in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Now, what Paul does here, and this is magnificent, is he basically gives the gospel in a nutshell. He basically goes to Peter and he says, listen, Peter, you and I are both Jews. I was Jew par excellence. I was Pharisee par excellence. I was the most self-righteous person you would have ever met in your life. And yet we know, as Jews, the justification was never by what you do. We know that Abraham, for instance, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and he was justified. That's the point of that text. That was 400 years before the law was given. Abraham believed, the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful, believed God, believed the promises of God, looked forward to Christ, and was justified. And Paul says, look, we know that. We know that that's the way it's always been. And then look what he does. And I love this. Paul does in verse 16 something so wonderful. He says the same thing three different ways. He says first, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, negatively. Not by this, but by faith in Christ. Then he says, positively, we believe in Christ Jesus, we're justified by faith. And then he says negatively, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul makes sure, he wants to be crystal clear. Verse 16, you need to memorize that. Let me just encourage you as your pastor to memorize Galatians 2.16 because Paul says three times the same thing, negatively, positively, negatively, so that we get it. That's very strategic tactic. He's going to make sure you understand it's by faith, not by works, by Christ, not by the law, by what he did, not by what we do. Even the faith is a gift. Even believing in Jesus is a gift from God. Um. You know, you and I are freer in Jesus than the freedom we have in America. Right now, let me say this, the weakest believer in Afghanistan is freer than any unbelieving American. Let me say this, the weakest believer in the most radically Islamic nation in North Korea in the most radical communist nation in the world where there is no liberty and no freedom, which we would all say is a bad thing, all of us. And yet, the weakest believer, which is the mustard seed of faith in Jesus, who's clinging to Jesus Christ, 
is more free, they've been set free by Christ, is more free than any unbelieving American who is still in bondage to sin, who is still in bondage to their own desire to try to work for God's favor. They're free. They're free for all eternity. They have an inheritance laid up for them. They will be heirs of all things. They will own North Korea and Afghanistan one day because of Jesus Christ. They are freer. And we can look at the opposition and we can look at our own national freedom and we can sometimes tend to think it's more about the earthly. And Paul says, listen, you guys, you guys are free. You're free. Listen, what that ought to do to your conscience, that Jesus has set you free. You don't have to work for his favor. You don't work for your father's. My sons don't work for their father's favor. That's a horrible thought to think of any child having to work for his father's favor. I love my sons because they're my sons. God loves us because of his son. He loves us in his son. He loves us because he loves his son. He chose us in his son before the foundations of the world and his son accomplished everything. And he loves you if you're in Jesus the way that he loves his own infinitely lovely son. And he doesn't require you to try to work for anything. And if you try to work for anything, you actually deny the gospel that makes you a son and that frees you and makes you a daughter of God. Listen, I can't even, I can't even tell you adequately what we have in the gospel, but I know that we are called to continually go back to it, know it, defend it, believe it, guard it, rest in the Christ who is revealed in it, rest in the Jesus. It's unthinkable that we would give up American freedom, and yet Christians everywhere are willing to give up the gospel freedom for their own works, for any other form of religiosity. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of Jesus says to us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to know the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from restrictive laws, freedom from man-made commandments, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from fear, freedom to know that we are accepted freely by your grace in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you have justified us. And though that's often hard for us to believe, Lord, you have said in your word that you have imputed the righteousness of your Son to us by faith and faith alone. Father, increase our faith in the Lord Jesus this morning. Build us up as we come to the table. We pray as we come to have table fellowship that we would do so with our eyes fixed on the one who fulfilled all things for us. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.